Okay, we are one minute past the hour. Thanks for joining everybody. Appreciate your participation. I don't have any special announcements, so I'll get right to Robert and his lesson, continuing lesson on X. Okay, let's get straight to it then. I will play the recording. We are going to read a little bit of Acts 1 that we read last time, but we didn't have a chance to discuss in then the first few verses of chapter 2. So here we go. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered Jerusalem, they went to the upstairs room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas son of James were there. All these continued together in prayer with one mind, together with the women, along with Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days Peter stood up among the believers, a gathering of about 120 people, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled that the Holy Spirit foretold through David concerning Judas, who became the guide for those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted as one of us and received a share in this ministry. Now this man Judas acquired a field with the reward of his unjust deed, and falling headfirst, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. This became known to all who lived in Jerusalem, so that in their own language they called that field Hakeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his house become deserted, and let there be no one to live in it, and let another take his position of responsibility. Thus, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus associated with us, beginning from his baptism by John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness of his resurrection together with us. So they proposed two candidates, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also called Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to assume the task of this service and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Then they cast lots for them, and the one chosen was Matthias, so he was counted with the eleven apostles. Acts 1, New English Translation Now when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a violent wind blowing came from heaven and filled the entire house where they were sitting. And tongues, spreading out like a fire, appeared to them and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven residing in Jerusalem. When this sound occurred, a crowd gathered and was in confusion, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Completely baffled, they said, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each one of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and the province of Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own languages about the great deeds God has done. All were astounded and greatly confused, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others jeered at the speakers, saying, They are drunk on new wine. Okay, and we're going to stop there for today. Next week, then, we will go into this speech that um, Peter delivers. And so next week is going to be really interesting. I know that last week and today are going to feel sort of like a long introduction.
but I still think there's really important stuff to discuss. And at least I think it's really interesting because it kind of frames the book where we've read last week and this week. But let's get straight to it. So there's kind of a problem for the book of Acts to take off, right? Which is the fact that we are missing an apostle. Judas uh, betrayed Jesus. He died. And we have to fix that. We need, we need a new apostle to complete the leadership group. And that is the first thing that we need to face in Acts. Well, let's discuss that because I really think we can learn quite a bit from that. Uh, just kind of as a detail, let's try to think about the, the setting, you know, where the action is happening. It, it is mentioned that they're meeting in an upper room. Now, I think that we are supposed to infer that it's not everyone in the upper room. There would not have been a home large enough at the time to accommodate 120 people in an upper room. So, you know, probably what we ought to infer is that they would meet, you know, some people would be in the upper room and then they would, the, the people would be distributed around the house and that kind of thing. Not that, not that that matters hugely, but it, it helps us to at least picture the scene. Uh, and it says they were staying together. Again, we had to take that with a grain of salt. Certainly the women would not have stayed with the men. Certainly 120 people would not fit there, you know. But they have kind of this base of operations where they're meeting. I think that we can safely assume that this is the same upper room as where they had the last meal with Jesus, you know, that, that was described in the gospel, the last supper. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way, but I think a reader would safely assume that. Now, why is it important that we have 12 apostles? And there's a really important image going on here that I think oftentimes we just miss or we don't think about it. Think about the history of Israel, right? Israel in the Old Testament had a very rocky kind of past. They would disobey God. God would essentially destroy them. And I don't mean to make light of that. It's, But... They, they just had this recurring situation where they would disobey God and things would go very poorly for them. But there was always a remnant, right? There was a remnant of people who stayed loyal to God and those people would then rebuild. And so there is this emphasis in the Old Testament on the remnant, on the people who stay loyal to God. Well, remember there are 12 tribes. And so having these apostles, these 12 apostles, it really conveys that image of the remnant of Israel, those who are loyal to God, um, you know, who remain loyal through the tribulations, and now they are rebuilding. And the idea, right, that, that the Jews would have had at the time was exactly that. Th there would be a remnant that would rebuild and eventually kind of bring Israel back to its former glory, uh, they would bring upon the kingdom. Well, I, I think that's exactly what the apostles represent. Um, and so that's why it's so important that we get back to the 12. And you see here this motif that I was trying to highlight last time, that Acts is the story of the end times. And by that, I don't mean like apocalypse and destruction and all that. I mean the last days, the time when God would bring his kingdom, right? The time when the people of God would be restored, which normally we would use the word Israel, but I'm trying to say people of God to not 
make kind of the, the incorrect associations. Um, and so that's what we're seeing here. The remnant of Israel is, you know, growing into the kingdom. And when they do it, they're blessing all nations, right? And now all nations are invited to join the people of God. And this is exactly the promise that was made to Abraham, well, or really to Abram. So if you go all the way back to Genesis 12, this is kind of the first covenant that we see God making with Abram, where he says, and I'll read it as, as brief, go out from your country, your relatives, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. Then I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will exemplify divine blessing, and will bless those who bless you. But the one who treats you lightly, I must curse, so that all the families of the earth may receive blessings through you. We are seeing that. We're seeing the fulfillment of the original promise of God. That is what the book of Acts is about. And, and I think it's incredible. I really do. Um, we can also notice this same connection in the numbers involved in the book of Acts. You know, we are told that there were about 120 people and how many are chosen for this role of apostle? 12. Right, so you get a tenth, and I say approximately. The book does say approximately, but I think it's it's you know approximating to those numbers to make this very point. Um, moreover, when Peter is speaking about Judas, he uses this terminology like, you know, it was his portion, it was his lot, he was selected for service. In all of those are words of election. Um, God did the same in the Old Testament when God selected some of the people of Israel, for example, to serve as the priests. That was their lot, right? All the other tribes were given a lot of land, but the one tribe, their lot was to be the priesthood. And we're using the same terminology here. Now, of course, you could make two even stronger associations. You've got the tithe, of course, which is the, this 10% that belongs to God, the same way there's like this 10% of the people, the 12 apostles, that God is claiming for himself for, for his service. And finally, you would have the rebuilding of Jerusalem after um, in, in the book of Nehemiah. Um, after the Babylonian exile, the Jews come back, and 10% or one out of 10 people are chosen to settle in Jerusalem and rebuild the city. Okay, so again, notice we really have this theme of the remnant is rebuilding the kingdom of God, right? So all the promises, all the way back to Genesis, are coming to fruition. Well, how is it that they choose a successor? Here, I want to, to talk about two things that they were discussed briefly last time, and I'll go into a little bit more detail. Well, but before I, I guess before I get to how they choose a successor, let's talk about Judas briefly because this is something that people bring up all the time. People will say that there's an inconsistency between, say, the book of Matthew, how it talks about Judas's fate, and the book of Acts. Uh, there's potentially two differences with how the narratives go. Number one, how Judas obtained the field in Acts. It sounds like he just bought the field with the money that, that he got from betraying Jesus. It doesn't come out and actually say that, but it, it's pretty much what it sounds like. 
if you read in Matthew, it is a slightly different story. In fact, I'll just go ahead and read it. Now, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus had been condemned, he regretted what he had done and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? You take care of it yourself. So Judas threw the silver coins into the temple and left. Then he went out and hanged himself. The chief priest took the silver and said, it is not lawful to put this into the temple treasury since it is blood money. After consulting together, they bought the potter's field with it as a burial place for foreigners. Yeah. So, you know, did Judas just buy the field or did he, or really was it the chief priest who bought the field? And to me, and perhaps this is because I'm an attorney, to me, this is simply not a, a, a difference at all. Sometimes we will describe very complicated transactions in very simple ways for the sake of brevity because the details just don't matter. Um, I will give a very brief example that just happened to me today, actually. there's I was describing a motorcycle that I used to own, and I said, well, I sold it. And the whole story is actually I took it for service. The mechanic forgot to tighten the oil drain plug. So then I was riding down the highway. It came out. The engine exploded. And I had to take it down to the dealership, threatened to sue them. And finally, they bought it back from me. But that person that I was talking to didn't need all those details. So the summary, I sold my motorcycle. It's just as valid. It just skips the details. And I think that's what we see with the first, with the, you know, this first potential inconsistency. The second one is with how Judas died in Acts. It, um, it says, now I'm getting the two narratives confused. Actually, let me read Matthew first. Um, it's, uh, oh, in Matthew, it just says that he just hanged himself. In, in Acts, uh, I think is where we read. Sorry, I've, I've read this so many times now that I get him confused. Uh, there, we read uh, that, uh, now this man Judas acquired a field with the reward of his unjust deed and falling head first, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. Okay. So did he kill himself by just by hanging or did his in intestines gush out? And again, this seems to me like very consistent sets of facts. It could be that he hanged himself and then wild animals came and, and you know, essentially caused that that later fate or maybe the, the tree branch broke or whenever he was being taken down, that's when his intestines came out. And, you know, remember that Luke is telling the story later and perhaps Luke just picked the more gory, you know, set of events to share in his summary instead of giving us kind of all the, all the facts that led up to that final gory outcome. So that's what I would say on that. I mean, as far as potential problems with, with biblical consistency, these to me don't seem um, to be issues at all. And, you know, I've been honest about other ones where maybe there are, there are differences that are hard to reconcile. To me, this is not one of them. At any rate, if people have comments, we can talk more about it later. Okay. Now, what I think is much more interesting is, okay, they're, they're going to replace Judas and they have to discuss what are the qualifications for an apostle. Because this really kind of tells us something about the New Testament as a whole. Now, 
you know, list of qualifications were common in antiquity. Uh, these people were not the savages that we make them out to be. Uh, they, they, first of all, for any witness, they would have preferred, of course, somebody of good moral character, so somebody who was not a criminal or a known liar or whatever. And also, they would prefer somebody who could provide eyewitness testimony. Okay, this was part of their court system. This is really not a disputed fact. So, what does Peter say? We need somebody who, or let me just read it verbatim, that's one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus associated with us, beginning from his baptism by John until the day he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness of his resurrection together with us. So what are we looking for? Eyewitness testimony of the whole journey. Both, I mean, not both, since baptism to resurrection. And really, we could split this into two requirements. One is eyewitness testimony, but also we're looking for somebody who persevered, right? Because we read in the book of John, and I, I cite this in the blog if you would like to read it, but many people throughout the ministry of Jesus deserted him. So we're looking for somebody who stuck it out, right? And... If you think about the New Testament canon, really the, the, the writings in the New Testament are by eyewitnesses, or at least commissioned by or approved by eyewitnesses, right? Because, you know, like some of the letters of, of Paul, we, we're pretty sure that somebody else penned them, like somebody else physically wrote them down, but at the behest of Paul, or the same could be said about uh, some of the Gospels. Um, even even Acts, I suppose you could say that Luke may not have been an eyewitness to all of that, but he got testimony from eyewitnesses, and this was approved by the apostles. So this really gives us some level of reliability about the New Testament in general. And now, of course, you know you need somebody familiar with Jesus because if they're going to be teaching what Jesus said, they have to know it and understand it well. So again, I, I thought that was noteworthy uh, for for several reasons. Now we get to perhaps kind of the trickiest part of the story, and there was a question about this last week. How do they select between the two qualified individuals, right? They have Joseph and they have Matthias. Well, they cast lots, which is just a game of chance. Probably what this looked like was uh, clay pieces that maybe they put like in a cup or something, and, you know one piece had the initial for one guy and the other piece had the initial for the other guy. And okay, they, they drew the piece that had uh, Matthias's name. Cool. Well, I think it, it bothers us. And I'm not speaking for the person who asked the question last time. I'm, I'm just saying kind of in general that the apostles would have used a game of chance. But I think it bothers us because we don't quite understand the historical context of this. Lots were used for lots of things in antiquity, particularly for selecting public officials. Okay? So, in, in the Greek world and in the Roman world, they would oftentimes use lots to choose between equally uh, qualified candidates. Uh, this would have been used for, uh, like, well, selecting judges and, and a number of other people. In fact, 
more than that, lots were used to decide, for example, which general would go to war and which uh, placing they would take in war. And sometimes, let's say that there was a group that had to pay for a terrible infraction. They would cast lots to see who was the one that was going to die or whose possessions were going to be sold. Okay, But again, particularly relevant is the fact that using lots to, to select public officials was quite common in the Greek and Roman world. So when the apostles are deciding on who's going to take the place of Judas between two qualified candidates, they just selected the method that was typical at the time. This, this is not unusual. It just seems unusual to us. Um, and to be frank, the, there's nothing wrong with the method. I mean, if you truly have two qualified candidates, then might as well cast lots for it. Now, like I said last time, we do not see the apostles casting lots ever again in, in you know, the, the book of Acts or in the letters of Paul, if I'm not mistaken. So this is by no means a method that we are prescribed to use. It's not like this is the method that we should be using, but it was perfectly acceptable at the time. There's nothing inherently wrong with it. So that's why they used it. I hope that that maybe, uh, you know, answers some of the questions related to that. Okay. So that is the end of chapter one, and we get into chapter two. This is when Pe Pentecost happens. This is one of the most well-known events in the New Testament, if not in the Bible as a whole. Now, let's talk briefly about where this event happens. We are told that they're all together in a house. Now, I always assumed, before I really studied this, that the house just was the same house with the upper room in chapter one. That's not necessarily the case. We're not told which house this is. Actually, it could be the temple because the temple can also be referred to as a house, right? Like a house of worship. Now, why would we think it's the temple? Because if you keep reading all the events, we will learn that the apostles end up talking to a bunch of people. They get like 3,000 converts. And the only place in the area that could have accommodated that number of people would have been the temple. So even if they were at a house, then we can infer that they, that once they received the spirit, they moved over to the temple. Now, which option you go with hardly matters. I just, again, I tried to discuss the setting so we can at least kind of picture it. Now, when does this happen? It happens during Pentecost. I know that sounds obvious, but we should, we should at least discuss what this festival is. So, most importantly, Pentecost was one of the Jewish pilgrimage festivals, meaning this is one of those festivals for which, by their law, every male had to attend. Now, we know from historical sources that this rule was really only applied for people who lived in the Holy Land, who lived near there. For very practical reasons, they did not expect this of people who lived you know, elsewhere in the world, in the known world. But it would have drawn a bunch of people, thousands of people. We have some estimates in ancient sources of how many people attended. They're almost surely an exaggeration, but nobody would disagree that this would have brought really tens of thousands of people. The thing is, some ancient sources speak of millions of people, which is probably not correct. Um, now, this festival was established in the Old Testament, it comes a certain number of weeks, really seven weeks, 
after the Passover. It, it happens on the 50th day. And so that's why, you know, Pentecost, you know, for five comes from that idea of the 50th day, hence the name. Now, this really was a harvest festival. It didn't have a, a great deal of theological significance. There is a tradition that developed over time that started tying this festival of Pentecost to the giving of the law at Sinai. Okay, that is not originally what Pentecost was about, but a tradition developed that made Pentecost about that. However, that tradition may be too late to really kind of affect Acts, you know, what, what we're seeing in Acts. And certainly Luke makes no allusion to it, no mention of it. So I know that there are some commentators who love to connect this idea of the giving of the law at Pentecost without the giving of the Spirit. I'm not saying that that's for sure wrong, but it's certainly not what the author of the book is conveying. And historically, it's a little bit dicey. But again, not, not necessarily wrong if, if you favor such a theory. Now, like I said, they would have had people from all over the known world. And the main two points that Luke is making by mentioning Pentecost is exactly that, that you have people from all over the world. And it gives you a set timeline that proves to the reader that, just like Jesus said, the apostles did not have to wait very long to be filled by the Spirit. Now, we get to the miracle of Pentecost, what really happened. So there is wind and there is fire. Now, of course, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, these images are, are extremely familiar as well, right? They were used as part of theophanies all over the Old Testament, and I'm going to mention some of those in a minute. But I think it's also worth noting that this kind of imagery would have been familiar to anyone in the ancient world. What I mean is just about in any religion, whether they were Greek or or you know, Egyptian or whatever, these, these images of fire and wind were often associated with appearances of a deity. So this, this miracle works in many ways in the sense that this would have been confirmation to anyone from any background that God is present. Now, um, before we get into the specifics of wind and fire, there is a little detail in how the text is written that I think is worth noting. Luke does not say that wind and fire came down. He says something like wind and like fire. It is a comparison that is being made. And this matters because this prevents us from drawing the conclusion that the Spirit is some kind of substance, which certainly the Greeks would have been thinking that way. So no, the text is very careful to make a comparison instead of to speak of actual fire or actual wind. Notice that this is also what the Gospels do with the Holy Spirit when Jesus is baptized. The Holy Spirit is like a dove. It's not a dove. It's like a dove. This is part of the reason why I don't like when people make films about this because then they actually portray a dove. And that's not what the text says. The text says something like a dove. There you go. Maybe you don't think that matters, <laughs> and I do, but that, that'd be fair. I just think that, that it is a, an important detail in the text. Okay. So what about the wind? The word in the text is actually very interesting because Luke uses 
the more rare word to convey the idea of wind. There's a much more common word that, that we find all throughout the Gospels and all sorts of Greek texts. But the word he uses is often used to, re, to, to convey the idea of breath, right? It, it only appears in the New Testament twice. The other place would be Acts 17.25, which is clearly speaking of the idea of breath and connecting this to Genesis 2 of the giving of the breath of life. And it appears in it 24 times in the Septuagint, um, oftentimes also related to breath, particularly life-giving breath, right? So the, the Spirit of God is descending like life-giving breath. And, and again, I just think that that connection is, is quite amazing because remember that Jesus talked again and again and again about giving life, eternal life, abundant life. And then what is the Spirit doing when it comes down? It finally gives them life. Notice that that speaks very much of a realized eschatology, meaning the end times are here, they're upon us. The kingdom of God is here. It's not something we just wait on. Now, of course, like I said last time, the kingdom of God is not fully here, but it is here to some extent. And that... that that has all sorts of implications, I think. Well, uh, this idea of wind, again, it appears all over the Old Testament. We, I think that that particularly somebody at the time hearing the story, if they knew their scriptures, of course, they would have been particularly drawn to Ezekiel 37 because of this idea of life-giving breath, life-giving spirit. And just for the the sake of time let me see how much yeah just for the sake of time i'm not going to read uh, the whole passage from ezekiel 37 but if you would like to read it just go to the blog or of course you can look it up yourself but that is the passage when ezekiel is taken out to a valley and god tells him to prophesy to just some dead bones right just some dried up dead bones and says prophesy that uh i'll, I'll read this part he said to me prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these corpses so that they may live. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and the breath came into them. They lived and stood on their feet, an extremely great army. Now, this passage, Ezekiel 37, even at the time was connected to the end times, to the restoration of the kingdom. And so here, essentially, that's, that's what we're seeing happen, right? People are receiving the breath of life, this life abundant, this life eternal. Um, and it, it is bringing upon the kingdom. Then we have the fire, right? Fire, of course, was also commonly associated with the presence of God. I will give you two of the main examples, but we could spend the you know the next half hour just providing examples of this but probably the most iconic would be the burning bush and i'll read this is only three verses now moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law jethro the priest of midian and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to the mountain of god to horeb the angel of the lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from within a bush he looked and the bush was ablaze with fire but it was not being consumed right so god first appears to moses 
in fire. Now, the other image that absolutely would come to mind was the fact that when the Israelites were delivered from Egypt and they were traversing the desert, God guided them as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. So again, I'll read this as very brief. They journeyed from Succoth and encamped in Etham on the edge of the desert. Now the Lord was going before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them in the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel day or night. He did not remove the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And I think that you could also fairly connect the, the pillar of cloud with the wind in Pentecost, particularly how it filled the room, right? So it very much brings you back to this idea of God leading his people in the desert. Now the Holy Spirit is doing that in the New Testament or, you know, since uh, the ascension of Jesus. Now, what about not just fire, but tongues of fire? That expression um, was somewhat common in Jewish texts. Acts is not the only place where we see that. For example, we do find it in the Qumran scrolls. And it, it that expression seems to be somewhat common because fire is generally spoken of as consuming, which really, if you look at the original language, the word is closer to devouring. So if you have fire that, that you know, we normally speak of as devouring, it, it conveys the image of a mouth, which would have a tongue. So that, that seems to be the origin of the expression. Now, in Acts, really, it seems like Luke is using that particular expression, not just fire in general, because it will connect with the effect of the miracle, which is that the apostles now, and probably the rest of the group, can speak in foreign tongues, in foreign languages. And the word is exactly the same. Tongue for language, tongue for the part of the body. Okay, so that is the effect of it. They are empowered to speak in tongues. Now, when I say that, speak in tongues, I mean that not in um, like a like a weird way. I don't mean that to sound offensive, but I mean it very literally. Like tongues, at the time, just like it does today, it meant the part of the body and it meant languages. So they're enabled to speak in different languages. And several of the the languages or really the nations are listed in the text. Um, so it, you know, it, it is it is this this wonderful miracle that allows the apostles to now spread the gospel to all nations. It has both practical significance and symbolic significance. It really is amazing. Now, this effect actually, or this miracle is very novel in the sense that we don't really find anything else quite like it in antiquity. If, you know, if you do some research, you'll, you'll see that some people immediately make the connection. Well, in other religions, they, they would have this kind of frantic type of speech where they would just like babble. And that's what, that's where the Jews got this idea from. But really, it's nothing like what Acts is describing. And if you look at other Jewish literature, you have some examples that maybe precede this, uh, but they're also not quite the same thing. 
um, essentially, I, I think it's fair to say, and if you want more nuance, go go read the blog on this one particular point. Um, but it, it's fair to say that this is kind of unprecedented in ancient times. That there's no other miracle or story that we can point to that is exactly like this. Now, what what we do have precedent for in the Old Testament is the idea of God pouring His Spirit on someone to enable them to prophesy. Probably the clearest example would, would be in 1 Samuel, and I'll read that. Um, afterward, you will go to this place, I don't know how to pronounce, of God, where there are Philistine officials. <laughs> when you enter the town, you will meet a company of prophets coming down from the high place. They will have harps, tambourines, flutes, and lyres, and they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them. You will be changed into a different person. When the signs have taken place, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God will be with you. So the idea of the Spirit empowering somebody, enabling somebody to prophesy, that's not new. It's this whole idea of being granted the ability to speak in other languages. That is actually quite uh, novel and quite incredible. I thought this was this was rather interesting and that I should share. Some of the church fathers mentioned this idea of speaking in tongues. Uh, you see it in Irenaeus, for example, who he lived somewhere between 130 AD and 202 AD, plus minus a year or so. Um, so essentially late into the second century, you still see somebody speaking of, of this prophetic gift. Some of the other church fathers do too, but I find that Irenaeus does it the most clearly. Now, okay, so we have this miracle that enables the gospel to go out to all people. And uh, the, the last point that I want to make today is how I think that we can fairly make a connection between Acts chapter 2 and the Tower of Babel. Now, the Tower of Babel is in the 11th chapter of Genesis, and Luke does not make a very specific allusion to Babel, but I do think that we can make some connections. I mean, you know, I don't think that this is a stretch from a textual standpoint, and certainly not from a theological standpoint. So, for example, the table of nations that we see in Acts, it seems to have been at least loosely based in Genesis 10, which of course immediately precedes the Tower of Babel. And that's a longer discussion if 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 you want to make those connections between the nations. Um, yeah, that that's like beyond what we could discuss today. But I think that that is fair to say. Then also some of the words that are used and this idea of uh, spreading tongues and confusion, we find the same terminology used in Genesis chapter 11. So again, I think linguistically it's fair to make the connection. But particularly, I think the theological inference is very well justified. In the Tower of Babel, the story, and I put it in the blog if you want to read it, is very brief, it's three paragraphs. What you have is that people speak one language, they have one language, and they are building a tower so that they can make a name for themselves. In, uh, of course, you know, I would talk more about this if we were studying that particular story, but I think suffice it to say that they're trying to make themselves as God. This is, this is almost a repeat of Genesis 3, right? Where they eat out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And so the Lord comes down and confuses their language so that they will spread and they will not be able to work to, together and as one try to make themselves as God. And, and so I'll just read one thing. So the Lord scattered them from there across the face of the entire earth and they stopped building the city. That is, that is why its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the entire world. Okay. What do we see in Acts? The exact opposite. The Lord is restoring the ability to communicate together so that they may build the kingdom, right? In Babel, the Lord confused their language that they may not build the city. Now the Lord is restoring their ability to communicate with one another that they may rebuild the kingdom. What does this tell us? That Acts 1 is the beginning of the reversal of the curses, right? All of the trouble that humanity got in in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, this is the reversal of that. To say it for kind of the last time in these two days, although this will come up again, <laughs> Acts really is about the last days, not in the apocalyptic way that people think, but as in this is the last stage. This is the, the, the plan that God has for us he, his son died on the cross that we may be offered salvation. And now that message with power by the power of the Holy Spirit is to spread throughout the whole world. And through that, the curses are to be reversed. The sick are to be healed. You know, people are to find, to find hope and salvation is to spread from Israel to all nations. That is the framing of Acts. And that's why I've spent maybe a little bit of extra time, chapter one and this first half of chapter two, because I really think that we miss that when we read Acts. That's what Acts is about. Um, okay. And with that, Matt, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah. Thanks, Robert. As always, everybody, if you'd like to contribute to the conversation with a question or a point for discussion, just write the word question in the chat and we will take you in the order that we receive those requests. As far as my own thoughts... Um, this is more of just like a point of fact rather than something philosophical. But when you mentioned the qualifications for becoming an apostle and how important it was to witness the life of Jesus and in particular witness the entire thing, or at least the baptism through the crucifixion, right? Is that a large population of people who would qualify for that? Like how many, that, that seems really exclusive to me. Like, how many people would there be with that restriction? Yeah. So in Acts, right, they keep mentioning about 120. They, they don't say it's exactly 120. Uh, so at most, and I'm not saying this would be, but at most, there would be a pool of 120 people-ish. Okay. Um, but the fact that two jump to the forefront rather quickly in the text anyways, I, I think it suggests that, yes, it would have been a very small number of people. But I mean, when we say very small, maybe they were like 20 people, 30 people, you know, who knows? It's hard to determine that number other than certainly less than 120. Even that seems, I guess, I, I don't know what I would expect since I wasn't there and don't know, I guess, what a big crowd is at the time or isn't. But to have that many people follow the events uh, that closely, that's still more than I suppose I would have expected. So maybe it's not as exclusive as it sounded to me, but. Uh... You no, know, I think when you like, 
you know, now when you think back to the Gospel of John, yeah. you might remember yeah. passages where, like, say, Jesus would share a parable, and then he would go to the 12 and explain it further. So there was a larger group that was generally there, but we're also told that several people deserted him. So I would think that throughout the Gospel, or the events told in the Gospels, there were certainly more than 120 people, generally speaking, but these are the people who remained after all the trouble, if you want to put it lightly. All right. Thanks for explaining that to me. I know uh, Gilgamesh wants to chime in. Gilgamesh, go ahead if you're ready. When you were talking about the burning bush, you brought one thing, Mel Brooks's History of the World Part 1, where he's playing Moses and he's going up on the hill and he sees the burning bush and he goes, oh, yeah. He makes it sound like it's a woman screaming at him. It's funny as hell. He gets the tablets and one of them drops. That movie is funnier than, um, in a lot of ways, it's funnier than Monty Python's Life of Brian, which I know Matt absolutely hated that movie. Um, he thought it was terrible. But yeah, History of the World. And then at the end, the, the oh my God, I can't believe that he made that um, Dave Chappelle talk about there's a movie with the, the titles called Jews in Space. So Mel Brooks at the end of the first said, come in soon. History of the World Part Two: Jews in Space. I was laughing my ass off that. And then his actual History of the World Part Two is just not good. The first one was great. The sequel's just him pandering to all this ugh, woke crap and everything. It's just, it's not good. But it was funny how he put that in there that, you know, but that's what I, what came when I I was like, oh my god, that's remind me of him, you know, going up there with the to talk to God, and it's like they have the the bush is screaming at him, and he goes, oh, and he get you know, and it's like he has the four, what was it, fifteen commandments, and one of them drops, and he goes, oh, it's the ten commandments. It was just you know, but you know, there something I saw History Channel try to do about Judas was they try to claim there's this new scroll that was found that shows why Judas betrayed Jesus is that he, did you see that whole thing? It's really, they tried to make it look like the reason he betrayed Jesus was that the apostles were all betraying Jesus. They were all heathens and, you know, drinking and, and having all this sex and everything. And he, that's why he did what he did. And I'm going, that doesn't make sense to who Judas was, you know, he followed. I mean, that's why Jesus didn't hate him for what he did when he, when he sold him, you know, and like you said, when he saw what they were doing, he was horrified that he went back and said, here's the silver. I can't believe you guys lied to me. You know, he was horrified. That's why he hanged himself because he couldn't believe what they, they told him that they just wanted to, you know, have a conversation. He never expected them to torture and then have him crucified. So that's why he said, here's your silver back. And they said, too late. And that's why he hanged himself. It was like, he was horrified at what he had done, but Jesus never hated him. It's just like when he says on the, on the cross, Father, forgive them for, even though they knew what they were doing, he didn't want God hating the Jews for what they had done to him because he knew what was coming next. He knew it was important that this happened, even as it was horrible. That's why he didn't hate the Jews. He hated no one, didn't hate Judas, but Judas couldn't forgive himself when he saw what he, what, how he was lied to by the Israelis. And not everybody supported it. It was just the rich ones that couldn't stand what his message was. That's why they wanted him crucified. All right. Had he not suffered enough, and then he said, I washed my hands of this, you guys can do what you want with him. And that was Pi Pasha's pilot. You know, he was like, Oh, God, he's already suffered enough. Let it be. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Robert, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, my only thought on that is yeah, there's um, 
people, uh, for whatever reason, people enjoy making up all sorts of like uh-huh. essentially fan art about the apostles and they come up with weird stories yeah. and all that. But to my knowledge, there is zero historical oh, credibility to those oh, law theories. Yeah. They were just, History Channel had a lot of where they would make things up just to try to like, they would, you know, lie about a lot of stuff. And this they had was, a good run with that with yeah. ancient aliens. They I did. They show. ran a whole story yeah. on it and they had a whole thing about, well, they found this scroll that it turned out it was complete, but made up shit. And they ran a whole show on it saying, oh, Judas did this because yeah. this scroll says he was, he felt betrayed by the the other apostles because they were heathenists. All right. So that's why he did what he did. Okay. Well, thanks, well, thank thanks for the thoughts. Yeah. Okay. Uh, have a good night. You as well. Denby, thanks. if you're ready, go ahead. Uh, yeah, just a couple things. One first is, um, Robert, I think it's an interesting point about the um, kind of the undoing of Babel and also the undoing of the fall in a way. But uh, I mean, I think that, that um, there's another really clear thing here, which is that um, there's literally no miracle that gets through to everyone in this world at, at you know, at least in, you know, so far in history. I mean, it's like, you know, we were talking about Moses and then the pillar of fire and the pillar of, of cloud, you know, and it's, you, it's it, you know, Dennis Prager's talked about this. How about how he says it seems kind of almost sarcastic where there's some great miracle. It's like, and then they believed. It's like right, so so the twelve plagues, the parting of the of the sea, the manna from heaven, that's not enough. You know, each time they have to be told again. And I mean, here's this story about their speaking the languages of people from distant places, and there are people who say they're clearly speaking my language, and then a friend says, "Oh, they're just drunk talking." It's kind of hard to confuse drug rambling for your language. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing is that it's just, it's just, just, just as there are people who saw Jesus heal people and they're like, oh, well, who's this guy? Hmm. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, no, I think that. I, I I agree actually very much with that. The fact that, you know, sometimes people say, well, I would believe in God if he would just do a miracle in front of me. And if if you believe the Bible, and of course uh, I do, the miracles generally didn't have that effect. Um, all throughout, Old Testament, New Testament, uh, people just kind of believe what they want to believe. And there seems to be no amount of miracle or evidence that will do otherwise. So when you Generally say that speaking, effect, you mean persuading people to believe. They could witness yeah. them themselves and you'd still have some explanation otherwise. Yeah. And not just an explanation, but sometimes it just seems like a rejection, like what Demby is bringing up with this miracle. You see somebody that, you know, in the in the narrative, they go, aren't they just Galileans? And now they're speaking my, you know, random language. So they know all the facts. But they just essentially reject them. I think, no, they must be drunk. Well, that's not really well, they, an explanation. Yeah, it seems hard to believe that you could witness something literally miraculous, as in like supernatural, and reject it. But then I, you know, I know this isn't a modern political discussion, so I try to shy away from that. But 
I mean, I witness all the different ways in which propaganda is effective today to get you to believe things that are contrary to things you see right in front of your face, and people do. So it's it's not that much of a stretch for me to believe that you could witness something actually miraculous, but because there's social pressure or because someone important tells you to believe otherwise, that you will believe otherwise, even if you saw it yourself. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's, again, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, that's pretty much what we see. Miracles happen, people see them. Think about the 5,000 being fed. Like I said, that's probably the most graphic of all miracles because you cannot... Like if you had, especially in the Asian world, having food for 5,000 people, and really it was more than that, it was 5,000 men, so we're talking maybe 10,000 people. Like it would have taken months of preparation to like have a feast of that size. Yeah. And then people still rejected Jesus. So, but at any rate, we can leave it there. Denby, do you have anything yeah. else you'd like to say before you're Oh, yeah, out? just, yeah, just the, it's like, um, it's, it's it's kind of crazy how how immediate it is sometimes it's like there's there's moses he's done all these things he says okay i'm going up to the to the top of the mountain to talk to god you know and people are oh, okay okay and they're like boy he's taking a while let's make an idol and worship it like you know like moses um comes down and he's basically like god i've had it with these whiny weak faithless stupid you know these people who just they don't doesn't matter what i do for them it's not enough yeah this is kind of it's 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 a striking thing it's just no you know the, as, as robert was saying all these people say, oh if only this happened i would believe it. I was like, yeah sure you would yeah, I, I, impossible to satisfy, I suppose. Um, thank you for the thoughts, Denby. Appreciate it. Thank you. We do have uh, a few more requests to speak. I want to make sure I get through them here. So generally specific, you're up if you're ready to go. Sure, I got uh, something directly about the message. Hope you can hear me okay. Yeah. Um, the Directly about the message, but I got a few add-ons if we have time in the end or um, if that's possible. But uh, we were talking about tongues and the acts. It's, a, it's different languages, which is interesting to me. Because in the in the New King James Version, man, this sounds really loud. Let me turn down my okay, my feedback. <laughs> sounds like I'm screaming. Uh, in the New King James Version, it talks about uh for he that speaketh in an unknown, i.e. a strange tongue, speaketh not unto men, but unto God, for no man understandeth him. Howbeit in the spirit he speak speaketh mysteries. So basically, when, he, when there's two different types of tongues that I'm understanding here from what Robert's teaching me. And thank you, by the way, I appreciate you putting time and effort into this. Um, so one is actually being able to understand one another, probably through the help of the spirit, whether that's the gift of interpretation at work. But I find it very interesting when you get churches and I happen to belong to a spirit filled church that they do like to speak in a lot of tongues. But I, I like to listen to what Paul says, that you should do that. Paul speaks in tongues more than any of the other disciples, but he doesn't do it in front of mixed company. Um, because it edifies the spirit, man. It edifies. That's, that's like when I'm speaking in tongues, I'm not speaking to man. I'm speaking that that's my spirit speaking to God. I don't even know what I'm saying. I have to pray that God will give me an interpretation so that I can then edify the church by interpreting that, which I, I had spoken to God. So there's the, I'm kind of glad you brought up tongues and maybe we can do a deeper dive, maybe offline, maybe through emails or something. Cause I've got a lot of questions on it and I don't want to bog it down. 
but I just thought that that was interesting. And then there was the, uh, you, you had mentioned and, and, uh, Denby just mentioned too about, look, they're a stiff necked people, God's chosen people. I, I think people think when they, when they hear the word God's chosen people, this is why, I, this is why I know that we're all made in God's image. I believe that God is in the masculine, but he's also got an awful lot of feminine because women do like a project. And believe me, the Jews are a project people. Um, so it's like the parable of the lost sheep um, where there are 99, i.e. Gentiles that don't need all these miracles constantly to believe and haven't reject the Messiah. But it, it talks about even in Revelation, um, it not until the end when there's two witnesses that did not have a actual physical death, but were lifted up to heaven or returned back to the streets of Jerusalem. They will, they will uh, preach the gospel. They will, they will be slain. No one will touch them for three and a half days. They will self-resurrect and go back to preaching the gospel. And then and only then will all knees bow and all tongues confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, that's not for us. That's for the stiff-necked people. So, again, I, I share Danby's kind of exasperation. Uh, my other receipts that, that God's chosen people means that they were project people because they had the worst of all the traits. Moses didn't come down from the mountain with all the laws and the Ten Commandments for all the Gentiles. It was specifically because the Hebrews are doing adultery. The Hebrews are doing coveting. The Hebrews are doing all these different things. I'm not beating up on the Jews. If, those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. I'm praying for them that they'll unstiffen their neck and soften their hearts. Turn and, and, and here it is. Second uh, Chronicles 7.14. It says, uh, and here's the problem. And here's exactly what's going on to this day. And I, I would invite you to look into Habakkuk too, for those that are listening. Uh, and and I'll, I'll end it with this. I got a couple more things if time allows, but I'll, I'll end it with this. And I, I appreciate the grace. Um, so he says, uh, so it's second Chronicles, uh, chapter seven, verse 14. It states that if God's people who are called by his name, this is Jesus speaking now, humbled themselves, pray, seek his face and turn from their wicked ways. He would hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their lands. Well, I don't know if you've been looking at the news. But the lands don't look too healed, and things just seem to be getting spiraling even worse and worse. So it would be awful nice if God's chosen people would unstiffen their neck and soften their hearts. And I'll, I'll listen to your comment about that. And again, if, you get, if you'll allow me in the end, I, I got a couple other. Sure. Robert, did you have thoughts on that? We probably will be up against the clock here, so we might have to save that for next time. But uh, your thoughts, Robert? Yeah, so uh, just because of the, the sake of time, do we have any other questions? I got two uh, more, yeah, and I'd like okay. to get to those if we're able. Yeah. yeah, then I will just keep it very brief. I will just say I, I consider discussing speaking in tongues uh, more in depth, this whole idea. Matt, are you familiar with that expression? What? Uh, not what, really. I suppose I could use a proper definition for what exactly that means. So nowadays, when we use that phrase, uh, generally we mean uh, people who who uh, the idea is that they are kind of filled with the spirit and they speak in a, in a language that is not intelligible to anyone else. And, and it's like a special prayer language with which they're communicating with God. This is, this happens uh, most commonly in Pentecostal churches, surprise, surprise, because of Pentecost. Uh, there's quite a few denominations that don't engage in that practice. Now I'm not saying that to either, prop up the practice or criticize it. I'm just saying it is somewhat controversial. But you're, you're saying um, this isn't, so this wouldn't even be a, 
a language in the way that we conceptualize it now, as in one guy speaking in tongues is not necessarily understandable to another guy who may speak also speak in tongues. It's like it, unique to the individual almost. Yes, but generally speaking, when that happens in a congregation, then there will be another person who can interpret it. So there'll be like oh, one okay. other person who can understand it, and then they will share the meaning with the rest of the congregation. Okay. Um, and like I said, this practice is is controversial for good or bad. Again, I'm not taking sides on this. I'm trying to keep it non-denominational. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to discuss that a little bit further, but there's no way that we can do that tonight with the time that we have. But if sure. there's interest in that, I don't mind going into it maybe some other day, and I could maybe kind of present, present both sides of it. Okay. Uh, thank you, Generally Specific. Perhaps we'll revisit that topic uh, again sometime soon. Donald, we got Donald and Chris. So, Donald, if you're ready to go, go ahead. Yeah, real quick. Uh, just want to thank you, Robert, for doing the tie-in with Babel, Babel, <laughs> um, because uh, it's it's so funny. It's one of those wonderful uh, pieces of exegesis, I guess, if I'm using the right word, that it's, I, my reaction was, wow, that's so obvious. Why didn't I see that? Um, that this is God's redemptive work. Um, man, back in Genesis, attempted to create uh, heaven on earth, if you will, or become as God. Uh, God put a stop to that because that always ends in disaster. But here is God. Uh, no, no. He's like, okay, here's how we build the kingdom. And this is through uh, all people on earth coming to understand that I have, that I came in Christ, that I died for you in Christ. And that's, that's how I'll build my kingdom, that you will have redemption through Christ. It's just, it was beautiful. Anyway, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, Donald. Your thoughts, Robert? No, uh, Thank him for the comment. And I, I also, it gives me chills. I, I'm sorry that sounds kind of corny, but I just find it amazing. And the way, think about how, like how many years, even just in writing Genesis to writing Acts, whatever you think of the age of the earth, blah, blah, blah. I'm leaving all that aside. Clearly the book of Genesis and the book of Acts are separate by thousands of years and they connect perfectly. It's amazing how scripture holds together. But okay, I'll leave it at that so we have time. All right, Chris, your thoughts if you're ready. Yeah, I'll be super brief. Um, I just want to say, uh, yeah, thanks thanks for, to all of you for your observations. And as far as uh, acts go, um, uh, I'm sorry, as far as tongues go, there, there's some there's some pretty good instruction on it, I think, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Of course, this is written to Christians who, some of who had these gifts, right, and how to properly use them and, and so forth. So that's, that's my only comment. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, Chris. Uh, you have any thoughts on that, Robert? I will say that he's correct. So the only book other than Acts that mentions tongues is 1 Corinthians. And most of the references are in chapter 14. You will also find some, I believe, in chapter 13. Maybe there is one in chapter 11. Um, I can't tell you by memory, but yes, it's only in 1 Corinthians. So if you're interested in that, read uh, the letter to the Corinthians, and uh, you will see what Paul has to, to say about speaking in tongues. We did have one more request to speak if you have time for it. Yeah, I do if you do. Okay. Yeah, I do. Uh, Garrett, go ahead if you're ready. At least I think there was. Did I 
interpret or did it go away? I thought I saw that. Maybe not. Maybe he had to take off. I swear I saw it, but it must be gone now. So I guess that's that. Uh, all right, Robert, do you have any uh, other thoughts before we call it a night? Um, no, I, I would just say I'm excited about next week. We will get into Paul's speech, uh, not Paul, I lie, Peter, <laughs> Peter's speech. And um, I think it will be pretty exciting. Thank you for, for putting up with kind of this long introduction to the book, but I just find it so important to, to set the groundwork, you know, f- to yeah. build upon. Yeah. All right. I, I see Garrick is deferring to next time and generally specific. Um, we'll probably just pick up uh, next time if, uh, if you're able to make it. Uh, and thanks for your contributions to the, to the uh, study, everybody. And of course, thanks to Robert for all the time that he puts into it. Appreciate your participation this evening. And uh, we hope to see you back next week and every week going forward. That's Friday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern time. If you need any of the Bible study resources, listen back to the prior studies, read up on uh, Robert's blog, or send either of us messages, head on over to the Bible study page on my website. It's linked on the homepage, mattchristiansenmedia.com. Have a great night, and we hope to see you next week.